This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You are listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. I am Anna Mullins-Ellis, President and CEO of New Memphis, the organization that puts this little podcast and radio show together. And I'm here with my teammate, Jamie Bowler-Raup. Welcome, Jamie. Hi. Jamie is often behind the scenes on the podcast, um, but we have asked her to step up today because I think um, she had the great idea for us to focus in on this issue this week. Um, I want to just sort of start by saying, you know, New Memphis's mission, if you're not familiar, if you're not a longtime listener, um, if you're just coming to the New Memphis family, we are a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain talent for the city. Um, that sounds confusing. And sometimes when I say the word talent, people think of musicians or sports stars. But no, we're just talking about you, you, the listener, the person that um, chooses to be in Memphis, chooses to live and work here. Um, at the heart of what we do, we're an economic development organization. We want to make sure that Memphis has a thriving economy. And in order to do that, we have to have people here who are working and spending money and uh, contributing to the economy. So our work is, I'm getting a little more nuanced than I usually do um, as we as we line up an episode. But if you are familiar with this podcast, we're constantly talking about what makes Memphis a livable and lovable place. And those are two very subjective uh, terms. But in general, what is it that makes Memphis sticky for somebody? Why would you want to come here? Why would you want to stay here? Um, because when we are in the the business of talent recruitment, talent retention, um, whether that's a business trying to get somebody to come here or, you know, I, I often talk with people who are trying to get their kids to move back to the city. Um, you want your partner to move here with you. Um, we want to make sure that that's easy. And so what we do at New Memphis is we track national data that shows us what is it that drives retention in a city? What is it that makes a place distinct, interesting, successful. Um, and the data is really clear. There are a number of metrics, but on um, on the spectrum are one, inclusivity. So how inclusive is a place perceived to be? Um, another important factor is diversity, how diverse is a community? Um, so when we look at successful cities, and again, when I use the word successful, I'm talking about cities that have um, economic prosperity where everyone in a community is thriving. Um, they have access to um, the things, again, the things like arts and culture, um, great professional opportunity, um, all those things that sort of come when people choose a place and start investing in that place. So um, I'm giving us this long preamble because there's been a lot of interesting things happening in our state of Tennessee as of late. Um, and one of the pillars, again, of, of our work is building a inclusive and livable city. And as decisions are made in Nashville uh, that impact Memphis, that have consequence on what that inclusivity can mean here in Memphis, we feel the need to bring those issues to the forefront. Um, we believe that Memphis has to be a place for everybody. And in order for it to be a place that is affirming of the value of people, it has to be affirming the value of all people. Um, so that is why today we want to focus in on actually, well, I will pause and say this is the first podcast in a series where we're really going to try to dig into racial and social justice um, and what that means in our city, what influence that has on how it feels to live here. Um, you know, we talk a lot at New Memphis with um, different leaders, organizations, um, nonprofits that are helping make Memphis concretely more livable. And that just might be, hey, I just opened an awesome new coffee shop uh, in this part of town that makes this neighborhood more exciting. Hey, I'm working on... Uh, 
making this public park more accessible and more usable for the community. We're talking to people who are working, again, in arts and culture, sports, entertainment, folks who make Memphis a fun place to live and work. So today we want to talk with some folks who are really leading us forward in terms of LGBTQ rights, um, especially as those rights are being eroded at the state level. Um, so, I, Jamie, I, I, I'm sorry, I've, I've been on a... I've been on a soapbox. No, it's great. It's I great. need like a sound, uh, like a, what is the word? A sound effect. Sorry. Yeah, some air horns. That took like, me way too long. Yeah, I want like, a, like a, a sound effect of me like climbing down from a little wooden box. If oh, you can get oh on that, I was thinking Anna. a different sound effect. Uh, <laughs> or that. Different. I mean, also air horns. Um, so I just, you know, as again, Jamie is actually relatively new to our team. Yeah. She joined us uh, late last year as the community engagement manager at New Memphis. So, um, and she also recently returned to Memphis. She mm-hmm. was living in Washington, D.C. or the Washington, D.C. area and made the choice with her and her partner to come back here to Memphis. So I wanted to just ask you um, from your experience as a recently returned Memphian, mm-hmm. um, how this feels for you and as somebody who again has gotten to really um roll up their sleeves and dig into the work at new memphis sort of how and i want to again say i really appreciate you asking for us to to start this social justice conversation with this very urgent um sort of micro topic around lgbtq rights so just tell us how uh how has it felt coming back to Memphis in this last year? Yeah, yeah. So this is the second time I've come back to the city. Actually, I went away for school, went to South Carolina, came back, and then went away for a job in D.C., spent a few years, came back. So Memphis really does have a way of pulling you back. I mean, it's, it's you know, part of it was family. Part of it is just really the affordability of the city and the communities here. I, I love the art, arts and theater communities here, and they just feel really it's been great to come back and feel like I can step back into these communities, um, though they've changed over over time and with the pandemic and all of that. And it's been great to be with New Memphis and feel like, you know, we are truly, you know, on top of what is happening every moment in the city. Like, really, it, it makes me feel really connected, especially to sectors that I haven't always been connected to. And, you know, this particular what we're going to talk about today feels really, really important because it just feels like an intrinsic part of what makes Memphis Memphis, which is our artistic community, is is going to be completely shaken and can you know could be ultimately like devastated by some of these decisions. And so it feels it feels somewhat personal, but also you know just important for everyone in Memphis to think about what's happening right now and how that's going to affect all the things we love about Memphis that make Memphis Memphis, the music, the theater, the, you know, all of the artsy things that we love. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm super glad you're here and I'm super glad to have our guest today. We had, um, you know, this is the magic of of radio again, where we're recording this uh, after we had this conversation. And I think it was a really, um, in some ways complex, but in many ways, um, I think our, our guests today do a really great job. If you're not if you're listening and you don't feel like you have your arms around what this issue means, um, we're you know we referenced some legislation, recent legislation around um, banning drag performances in our community, around uh, providing gender affirming care for youth in our community. Um, so those are the, the when we're talking about like what's going on in Nashville in the in the broad sense. Those are the things that we are referencing specifically. All of those things are a moving target right now. Um, there's new legislation. There are um, some stays put in place. So it's all kind of working its way through the court system. But we just felt like we wanted to give voice to um, those people who are again, as we always do, we are um, lifting up individuals who are leading 
with um, integrity, leading with intention, who are actually making change in Memphis. And our hope is that you uh, can listen to this conversation and either learn something, expand your perspective, and then maybe hopefully um, activate and do something to uh, make our our community more livable as we move forward. So, Jamie, who do we have coming to the studio today? Yeah, we are so, so excited to have these great guests here today. Uh, we have Jenna Dunn, who is the Trans Services Specialist for Out Memphis. As the Trans Services Specialist, Jenna assists the Trans Services Manager in implementing programming, group facilitation, resource referrals, collaborating with community partners, and working to support the trans community in whatever capacity they can. We also have a new Iyer. She is the volunteer coordinator and community manager for Out Memphis. A new hopes that her work as the volunteer coordinator at Out Memphis will bring folks within the LGBTQIA plus community and allies together in a safe, inclusive, compassionate environment. We also have Krista Thayer, Krista Wright Thayer, who is the director of outreach and prevention for Friends for Life Memphis. Her advocacy work includes being a part of a faith advisory board to bring HIV prevention and stigma reduction to churches, speaking out against discriminatory legislation, and giving those living with HIV or potentially impacted by HIV a platform to speak on their experiences and share their journeys. So they, they'll they share a little bit more about um, their work at Out Memphis and, and Friends for Life um, to give you a better idea of, of kind of what they do. Let's jump into it. So welcome. We've got some great guests in the studio today. Uh, we're so excited to have some folks from Out Memphis and Friends for Life here with us. Uh, to start off, can can you all just introduce yourselves? Give us, you know, your name, your your title, your organization, a little bit about you and, and anything else you might want to share. Yeah, uh, my name is Anu Ayer. I use she, they pronouns. I'm the volunteer coordinator and community manager at Out Memphis. I've been with the organization as a staff member for about a year and a half. And before that, I was a volunteer with the organization through Rhodes College for about three and a half to four years. I'm Krista Wright Thayer. I'm the director of outreach and prevention at Friends for Life. I'm in charge of our outreach center, The Haven. I've been there since October 2020. I enjoy what I do. It doesn't feel like work. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I'm Jenna Lee Dunn. I'm the trans services specialist at Out Memphis. Um, I'm also a transgender woman. I have been living out publicly for about three years now. Um, I'm also a community leader and advocate for trans rights. I um, also own my own LLC that hosts um, drag shows and various events. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for, for being here today. Um, so for for... People who might be listening who are a little less familiar with your organizations, can y'all give us kind of a an overview of, of what your organizations do and, and what you do within it? We do a lot. Yeah, so yeah. I'll start from the top. <laughs> I'll go down and try to make it as concise as possible. Uh, Friends for Life has three locations. We have our headquarters on Cleveland. We have the Outreach Center, The Haven, next to the University of Memphis. And we have The Corner on 806 Corner down by Cooper Young. And so at the headquarters, we do assistance with housing for those living with HIV. We also have a food pantry for those who are food insecure. We have case management. We also have mental health services for anyone living with HIV or not living with HIV. We also have the Haven, which we do outreach work. We do HIV testing in the field at 
places to normalize it. So farmers markets, drag shows, U of M out in the lawn, wherever we can, we just bring it to you. And we do condom demonstrations, condom distributions, and we test for hepatitis C as well. Awesome. Um, Out Memphis is the LGBTQ center of the Mid-South, originally known as MGLCC or the Memphis Gay and Lesbian Community Center. Uh, The organization organization received its charter in 1989 and originally started like a lot of LGBT centers across the country as a 12-step program for our community. Um, just kind of the primary way in the 80s and 90s to get to know members of your community was to frequent gay bars and nightclubs. And so MGLCC was intended to be a substance-free space for members of the community to meet one another, talk about the things that they were going through um, in a safe and affirming space. Um, In 2003 or 2004, uh, our founding members purchased the building that we have currently in the Cooper Young neighborhood. It's our flagship location and our community center. For the first 10 or 12 years, uh, primarily served as a safe space and a gathering space because there weren't a lot of affirming public spaces for the members of the queer community to gather. It was still a dry space, uh, substance-free kind of community center. Um, One of our longest running programs and the first ones to kind of come around was our sexual health and HIV testing program. Um, And then from there, we just expanded all of our different direct services from trans services, youth services, providing housing and case management to 18 to 24 year olds who identify as LGBTQ and are experiencing homelessness. We also have a massive volunteer program, internships uh, at different levels. Um, yeah, we also have three facilities, our main community center in the Cooper Young neighborhood. We have our youth emergency center, which is also known as the Metamorphosis Project off of Southern Avenue and our admin offices and donation center located off of Summer Avenue across from the Malco Drive-In Theater. Awesome. I would love to hear a little bit, Jenna, from you about specifically the trans services provided by Out Memphis. What have they been historically and what do they look like today and how might that be changing over the next few weeks, months, years? Well, so um, for a while, um, there was like a lapse in time um, that Out Memphis really didn't have a good solid um, trans services department. And then they had um, they hired um, a person named Alex, who was a trans guy, and he had run it for about two years. Um, two to three years, um, and had implemented some very good things like the name change and um, the name change workshop, ID workshop that we do um, that's very helpful to people that's trying to get their name or gender marker changed, um, implemented some uh, support groups like the virtual tea, which is for um, trans people that are 18 to, I mean, there's some 30-year-olds in there, so... Um, I've expanded uh, the definition of young professional as I turn right, 40. Right, so. Right. so, you know, age is, you know, what is age, right? So, exactly. Um, but yeah, so we're constantly trying to look for ways to advocate, advocate for trans rights, uh, especially trans youth. And I know um, Anu and Molly have been doing a lot of work um, with fundraising and um, setting up rallies and things um, for the trans youth. Um, also, we all have been working um, to get donations to help provide families that are affected by these bills that they're passing to be able to um, have take care of their travel expenses and things like that if they have to go out of state to receive mm-hmm. care now or uh, something like that. Um, so I know that there's been talks of strengthening um, like our advocacy and I guess um, health care 
spectrum for trans youth at out Memphis. So I think that may be the direction they're headed. Um, yeah, pretty much. And for, for anyone listening who, um, just needs a little more education on the topic. Can you, can you share sort of what does it mean to be transgender and what, you know, you mentioned the bills that are being passed, you know, what, why does that affect someone's health, especially a young person? Like, what is that? So being trans is more about just living your true life. Um, you know, when we're like, when I was eight years old, we didn't have the resources we have now. Um, like I didn't, I knew something was different about me. You know, when I was growing up, I knew that I always felt like a girl. I didn't feel like a boy or anything else. Um, but there was, I didn't have ways to figure that out like we do now. Um, unfortunately, uh, because more people are trying to live their truth and because it's very depressing and it's very, it's, it's sad. Every day you wake up and you look in the mirror and you hate yourself. You hate the way you look or something about you that looks, you know, masculine or feminine uh, and you want to change it because inside, you know, your mind is, you feel like you're, you're wired as a woman or a man, but you're looking in the mirror and you see something different and it causes horrible dysphoria to the point that some people might want to hurt themselves or potentially take their life. Um, I was at that point. So that's why we say life saving gender affirming care, because that is literally what it does. Um, to be able to receive that care um, and f- experience the feeling of your mind and body being in a line with how you perceive it should be. Um, words can't express that. And so for them to try to take this away is going to be devastating. Um, your suicide rates are going to go up with your trans youth. Um, it, it's stressful for the whole family. Now they have to try to find care you know, out, out of state or wherever or possibly move to a different country or something because it's becoming so hateful and people are projecting so much violence on trans people nowadays. It's interesting to me that, I mean, as you guys were describing the um, histories of your respective organizations, there is an underline of there was an urgency to provide health care and health services to people or um, conditions that were considered, you know, had, had to be kept underground. So whether that be, you know, being HIV positive or needing gender affirming care. Um, and I think that's really, uh, to, as we're ha- kind of launching in this conversation and talking about the overall impact that this legislation has on the community of Memphis and how welcoming it is to to people of, of all stripes. Um, I think that that really anchors us in what is not just, you know, a conversation about uh, rights, but a conversation truly about being able to live a healthy and productive life. Um, so I'm curious, you know, especially as the sort of intersection of Friends for Life and Out Memphis, um, how how do you or have you or do you hope to work with the healthcare community? Are you, do, are there, I know I have a general understanding of the Friends for Life work. I know you guys are working with physicians and, and nurses, but I'm, I, I don't know as much about Out Memphis, but I'm just curious how that relationship has been um, built over time and how it's been challenged in this current environment and what what can be done um, to make sure that Memphis is still a place where doctors and healthcare professionals that provide these services can and want to live and serve. It's better now. Friends for Life was started in 1985 because those living with HIV felt like they couldn't live. So when we talk about case management, we also have a person that deals with the client and their provider, their primary provider to make sure they stay in care. 
stay on their medication, make sure they have food, make sure they have housing, make sure they have mental health services. And we check with them every step of the way. We're called Friends for Life for a reason. We are your friend. We don't want you to feel despair or stigmatized. A lot of times when clients come to our locations, they worry about people knowing that something's going on with them. We'll let them know it's a safe space. and They don't have to worry about that. And whatever their provider says goes, and we just want to give them the support to do what they can do. And we don't want bills that are now just attacking, if I may say, the trans community to trickle down to other people, which it already has. They took our HIV funding, and we really are just trying to look at our options right now. And it doesn't help anyone. It actually makes things worse for people who already have obstacles to living their best life. Can you can you give a brief summary if if someone hasn't been staying up on the news of what happened to the funding in Tennessee? Uh, the governor decided that he wanted to take the $10 million that comes to the state for HIV prevention and care and treatment. And he wanted to reprioritize the groups that would get this funding. He said it would be first responders, mother to child transmissions, and I believe women who are pregnant. And those groups actually don't have to worry about HIV issues. First responders, they have PEP, that's post-exposure prophylaxis. If you think you were exposed to HIV, you take it and you won't contract HIV. 85% efficacy. Um, Mother-to-child transmissions with our advanced medicines, that's not an issue anymore. And also victims of sex trafficking. They also can use PEP if that's an issue. And that's also not an HIV transmission or deal when it comes to victims of sex trafficking. Um, they have it or they don't have it. It's not something to put the funding into those. Those are not priority populations. People in our community who need to have this, these preventative measures, they need the funding so they can get tested and know their status, know their partner status. They need condoms and they need treatment if they are um, living with HIV. It seems really simple to me, so it's mind-boggling why he would make that decision. In terms of the work uh, at Out Memphis, how how are you building bridges with the healthcare community, and you know who who other than y'all's two organizations are um, partners or supportive in that work? Great question. Um, historically, Out Memphis has really relied on uh, personal connections, both from the community and from the providers that we have personal relationships with. Um, word of mouth has been the biggest way for us to kind of get feedback on the kinds of healthcare and the quality of healthcare that's being provided. We can, it's very easy to talk to doctors and physicians and ask them if they treat and provide people who identify as trans or gender nonconforming. It's a whole other conversation talking to the people receiving that care and what those experiences are, are like in the doctor's office. So it's, it's a two-sided conversation of talking to the providers and asking them what specific kinds of treatment they're providing certain members of the community. And it's also talking to the members that are receiving those services and asking them what the quality of that care is like and making sure um, their needs are being met, but also that they're being treated fairly and they're being affirmed when they're going to visit their doctor. Um, for gender affirming care, uh, recently Tennessee uh, has passed a bill that would ban gender affirming care for minors um, under the age of 18. And that includes um, mental health support, access to hormone blockers, access to hormone replacement therapy, and any kind of surgical gender reassignment or confirmation surgery. Um, there's just a lot of misinformation in general about what gender affirming care looks like for minors, how early they can access it, especially in the state of Tennessee, 
prior to this bill being passed, the infrastructure of healthcare is already so bare bones and people already have to drive long distances, have to figure out so much when it comes to insurance um, that we weren't even seeing like a big number of requests for uh, access to hormone replacement therapy for minors. Um, I just don't understand what the need is for this kind of bill. Um, people are going to have to start going out of state. People are going to have to ask a lot more questions around uh, insurance and what they'll be able to afford. Um, so our job right now has just trying to has been kind of like informing providers about what it is they can and can't do after a certain date and also helping connect families to organizations like Choices who are already providing hormone replacement therapies for minors starting at the age of 16 and who will create a pipeline for people to receive care at their Carbondale clinic once this ban goes into effect in July. The reason they're doing this is because they literally want to eradicate trans people. They've already said it, and that's what they, their main goal is. Um, and so they can't just, you know, line us all up and, and lock us away. I mean, they could, but um, so they put these bills in place to try to take away care and try to make it where you have to almost flee the country, you know, because you're in fear for your life. Because the more that they do pass these bills— and uh, get their way, it tells um, society that they can project, project violence toward the trans community and get away with it. And it causes an uptick in violence towards us. Um, so, and it's just like with the drag ban. It never, it's not really about drag queens. It's just another tool, and the wording in there is another way for them to um, manipulate the bill and use it against trans people, which a lot of drag queens are also trans, too. So it, it affects our whole community. You know, you're talking already about the impact of increased violence now against the trans community. And can you talk a little bit about the the challenges that the trans community already faces? Because you have a lot of services um, addressing issues like housing and, you know, issues like domestic violence. And so why is that so high in the community? And, and what what do you think the impact the violence part, you know, I kind of address because it, the more that these bills are passed and the more that, you know, it looks like um, the other side is winning, then it tells um, society that already want to do hateful things to us. It just feeds that and it, it gives them fuel to use more against us and be more violent toward us because they feel like they can get away with it. And a lot of times they do. Um, so what was the other part of that question? Why? Is housing and the things oh. that you address, uh, violence and housing housing issues, like why are these issues among the community to begin with? You and still have a lot of discrimination um, with these housing uh, places, even just like landlords and apartment complexes. If they know you're trans um, and they're not because there's very few that are, you know, out there and say, yes, we're, you know, we're friendly with the community and we're affirming and we we accept you. Um, it's, it's not a lot. It's, it's really not. And so. Um, it's hard for trans people, especially trans uh, people of color. Um, they're even more discriminated against uh, to get housing um, and to get help. And especially um, a lot of people, you know, that, that are doing sex work, um, it may be their only means of income or their only way of survival. They may not want to be doing it, but we have to figure out a way to 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 make an out for them, to give them a way to survive um with other options than that. The stigma is layered, right? 
It's hard for those who identify as trans to get jobs because of the discrimination. So they have to resort to, like Dennis said, sometimes sex work. And let's be clear, sex work is still work. It's real work. Um, just because it may not be legalized in some places, it doesn't mean they deserve to be trampled on. It doesn't mean they don't deserve rights. So it's the same with poverty issues. Um, people won't get their HIV preventative measures met if they don't know where their next meal is coming from, if they don't know where they're going to lay their head at night. They're not going to think about HIV prevention. So we do what we can as an organization to provide them with everything they need holistically so they can focus on their health completely. When it comes to housing, the uh, state of emergency shelters in Memphis are already so terrible. Um, but when it comes to members of the transgender, gender nonconforming community, your options are that much more limited. Shelters are often gender specific. They're often tied to a faith based institution that tried to doctrinate you. Um, and they often don't have a lot of privacy or confidentiality and can lead to uh, sexual assault and violence during stays at a shelter. So privacy, confidentiality, and just basic respect for people's uh, gender uh, just does not exist in the emergency housing system in Memphis. Um, so the Metamorphosis Project is one of the first um, LGBTQ-specific housing projects for youth and adolescents aged 18 to 24. Um, one of our goals primarily is to focus on people's privacy and their confidentiality. People in our dorm rooms have their own independent dorm rooms, their own bathrooms. They get a lock to their door that no one else has access to. Um, the primary drop-in center is only for them. No one else is allowed in, uh, especially on weekends. We don't have visitors. We don't give tours of that space. It's not uh, an open building like you would assume uh, other shelters to be. So... The emphasis here being on people's uh, respect for their basic living conditions and what they deserve. Jenna, I want to go back to something that you said about fleeing, um, and that is a, a paramount concern to us at New Memphis. Um, we're focused on making sure that this community is uh, magnetic for people, that this is a place you want to be and you want to stay. Um, and that that is, you know... We've talked a lot about the sort of individual consequence for people as as we should forefront. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit about how you guys think this has impacted the broader community's understanding of this place. As, I mean, I, I would ask you specifically, why are you still here? Um, and I, I think I know why, because you are a passionate person who believes in helping others. But knowing that, you know, there there is a, a concrete threat to to who you are as a person, how does that make you feel? If I can be that personal, and how do how in your, within your community, what are you seeing? Yeah, well, there's a lot of fear in the community, and people are terrified and they're scared and they're looking for answers. They're looking for answers to where am I going to be able to receive care after you know this law goes into effect? Um, where can I go that I can you know go out to eat or go shop and feel safe? Um, Personally, for myself, I had just made the decision a long time ago that I had hid who I was for half of my life, and I just wasn't going to hide anymore. And if, if if they killed me in the street, then at least I died living my truth and being happy. Um, and that's that's where I'm at. And also, um, I don't I don't want to leave this area because I've always lived in this area, and my heart is here. Um, and you can ask anybody that leaves Memphis, there's a piece of Memphis that just stays in your heart. It pulls at you constantly. 
I, I went to Texas. I stayed two weeks, and I was like, I got to get back to Memphis. <laughs> so That's it, it just pulled yeah. at you. Yeah. And, and being in the community, especially working directly in the community and seeing the needs, um, and then when you're able to bring joy to somebody's life and you get an email or text messages telling you how much that you touched that person and and helped them and made them feel good or you got them that resource that they needed for a therapist or whatever like that's why we do the work and that's what makes us you know feel so passionate about us and we want to stay here and and fight the fight um you know at some point like if it got really 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 bad like yeah i probably would have to look at look at some options um but I'm I'm trying to hold on as long as I can. Like they're pretty much gonna have to start rounding people up in trucks before I leave. <laughs> like it's gonna get really really bad, you know. Like I, I'm gonna go down with the community. Like we're we're in this together. So I'm curious for the broader LGBTQ community. Have I mean I'm sure you've had a flood of concern calls, <laughs> emails, texts. Um, you know I, I'm just trying to paint a picture for the listener of you know you don't have to be trans you don't have to have a trans kid for this to make memphis feel like a place that isn't for you um so i just i'm i'm being presumptive but i'm just curious what are the conversations you guys have a part been a part of and how do you feel you know what, what is the general tenor it's starting with the lgbtq community and you're next yes if you're not very conservative if you're not what looks like the default in america it'll come down on you too so it affects everybody and everybody needs to know what's going on I don't even like the term cultural war because we're all supposed to be in this together. And that's supposed to be the point. We're supposed to help each other, not tear down each other. There's enough to go around. Mm -hmm. There's enough resources. This false sense of scarcity really upsets me. There's a lot of tokenism, too, that goes on within some organizations also that needs to stop. But Can you um, define tokenism real quick? Tokenism is um, a definition of, so say you use a certain object for your own gratification or um, just for a show. But then when it comes down to it, it's like, where are you really? Like when we really need the help. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like you're here when there's cameras around, but like when we're, when we're in the trenches and we're fighting the fight, where are you? So, so that's going on um, in some places. Um, but, I've had people like tell me like you're so out, you live so out loud, like you're just so out there. Like, how do you do it? Um, and it's just I can't. I don't know how to do anything else. Like, I'm so happy living who, how I am and helping people. But it brings being that that out. Um, you know, it gives exposure not only to yourself but to the whole community because then people are like, well, well that person, you know, because there is a misconception and a stigma about trans people that is created by the same people that are making these laws um, that create this stigma about trans people. Um, but when people see you doing good and they see you living your life out loud and you're helping other people, you know, like some of them kind of scratch their head and they're like, well, well, I thought trans people were like this and this, but you know, this is, this is a really nice person. They're doing good for the community. And so some people will want to get to know you and they'll want to get to know um, more about trans and trans issues. Um, I've had people just, cis people you know that um have come up and like hey you know like we really we didn't understand anything about trans people or anything like you know we we followed you on your socials for a while or we you know we heard a podcast or something or you know we were at our memphis event or a, a haven event or something friends for life and we like we get it now we really want to support like how do we support so we're seeing more allies um, that are trying to support and trying to do things because they a lot of people see this hatefulness and they're like, you know, that's 
that's really messed up. That's really ugly. You know, like even if you may not have agreed with something in the past, um, some people will agree on just treating people inhumane and being hateful. And it tugs at some people's heart. Um, So it is that's the reason for us to keep pushing and keep doing what we're doing and keep being visible. So we do we do try to change some people's minds and we create more allies. But our allies need to step up because now is the time when we need you more than ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Quick two-part question. First, you mentioned cis. If you could give us a quick definition of cisgender. And second part is what can folks do to be better allies in this moment and going forward in the future? So cisgender just means that you identify with the sex that you were born born as, assigned at birth. Um, that's all cisgender means. Um, they So if you're trying to be an ally, you can, of course, um, attend rallies and make your voice heard. Um, when you hear people, you know, even your own family members talking negatively about trans people or people of color or anything, that's, if it's, you know, transphobic, racist, homophobic, you know, call it out. Call out your family members. Call out your friends. Say, hey, that's not cool. That's not that's not nice to talk to. You know, that person's struggling. Like, don't be mean to that person. Like, call it out. And you, they can also donate if they want to to organizations like Out Memphis, The Haven. Um, I know Southern uh, Campaign for South, Southern Equality has um, a trans youth assistance fund um, that they have set up. People can donate to to help. Um, families that are trying to get travel expenses or whatever to go get, you know, care for their child. Um, so there's things you can do. You can also, if you don't know, you can also reach out to us at Out Memphis or The Haven, um, and we can let you know in ways you can participate in things. And step in. Yes. Um, discrimination, if you ever heard of the housing discrimination, let's say there's a house in a neighborhood, but the owners are black, and the value of the house may go down. I'm using quotations in the air here. <laughs> um, but if you send your white friend in to get that house appraised, it'll be higher. The same goes for those who are trans. If you see something, step in and be an actual advocate for that person. And if you are a business um, whether you're a physician or a nail shop or whatever, um, and you're want to, you want to be an ally, like put it on your website, like put it out there so pe- so we know. Because you know, a lot of times um, they'll say, "Oh yeah, we're equal opportunity employer," or "Yeah, well we're trans friendly" or whatever. Put it on your site. I need to see it. Um, like Dr. Lacey, you go to her website. She has a whole tab you can click on about transgender care. Like that's what we want to see. Question for for Krista, but. This, this can really be for, for all of you. Um, with the HIV funding pulled, how do you see this impacting the overall health of the city going forward? It's kind of crazy and it's a little scary, right? Because if you don't know your status, you don't know you're passing it on and so on and so forth. Um, there's also a lot of co-infections that happen with HIV, including hepatitis C. And this will eventually trickle down to Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, like it, it will spread if you don't stop it. Shelby County is third in the nation for new HIV diagnosis. That's a really important statistic. So I would ask you to say it one more time. Shelby County is third in the nation for new HIV diagnoses. That like makes it hard for me to breathe right now. Like my chest hurts. <laughs> it's such an unnecessary. I mean, and everything that you described when you um, articulated Friends for Life's programming, it's it's unnecessary. And I think that's what's so frustrating. It's a problem that's easily solved um and yeah anyway sorry interrupted continue no you're fine we're just gonna have to look 
nationally for the funding that we need. Um, the state, I think I can talk about this a little bit, has started to say they're only going to fund six organizations in all of Tennessee. So that makes a lot of us say, well, what about our friends that are smaller organizations? Mm-hmm. What about our friends that are in rural areas that aren't Nashville or Chattanooga? What about Tipton County? Like, what are you doing? I'm trying to be cool and not very political, but it's hard (laughs) because I care about the people in my community and these things really impact them. And if you don't stop them now, it's going to cost even more money. It's not even cost effective. Politicians say they care about the bottom line. Well, you're going to cost us more money. PrEP costs about $2,500 and HIV will cost you like $50,000 to treat over a year. So it really makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the bottom line in in all of these intersections you know what what are the other communities what parts of the economy do you think are going to be impacted like i know from personal experience i'm involved in the theater community and the arts community here and i know that that is going to be severely impacted it's already being impacted by these decisions and where else do you see these where else do you see the impact falling I mean, you said it. Theater, the arts, everything. There's people that are scared to perform like because they're afraid, well, am I going to get arrested or the cops going to come busting the door in and, you know, say that we're female impersonators or whatever, male impersonators and arrest us. So it may be hard for venues to get bookings or, you know, and stuff. I mean, we're already seeing Mid-South Pride is going to be the only Pride Festival in Tennessee this year with drag performances. And they're even having trouble pulling in sponsors that have historically sponsored Pride for the past five, ten years that don't want to come back this year because Tennessee has been under the national spotlight. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we talk a lot of New Memphis about the city's brand in sort of a macro sense and... Um, Sometimes it's great when you see Memphis and Tennessee called out in the news or on, you know, late night television. And then sometimes it is not great. Um, And that gets back to our sort of, you know, there are immediate consequences of what's happening in the immediate sort of aftermath of this legislation and when when it takes uh, uh, isn't fully enacted. Um, But then I think there is this long tail of how people think about this community. And as y'all have clearly stated there are people who don't have choices who can't just pick up and move that's not a reality for a lot of folks in our community um but there are a lot of people who do have choice and have decided for a multitude of reasons that this may not be a community for them and again that might be because they are a prolific artist and they don't want to bring their troupe to our city to i I just feel like there's so many ways and um jamie sort of asked the question i'm curious you, you mentioned sponsors for Pride, and that sort of brings me to, and you mentioned small businesses in particular, and I think that is a really powerful suggestion, um, whether or not you, whatever kind of business you are, just being overt in stating we are a safe space. What else have you seen the employer, the corporate community, large or small, do in support of the LGBTQ community uh, historically in Memphis? Um and what would you call on them in addition to sponsoring Pride, which they should absolutely do? What would you call on them to do to make sure that their employees who identify as LGBTQ or care about those issues, um, if they're thinking about making sure that talent is secure here, what do you suggest they do, both internally at, at their companies, externally in terms of support in the community? Sorry, well, that's a big question. One thing they could do is create policies mm. and in their handbook and, you know, Especially like these big corporations, because I know it's really, really, really bad if you are a trans person and you have to work in a warehouse. 
Um, that was where I was working when I first came out. And so trying to begin transitioning and working in a um, especially male dominant uh, warehouse um, really bad, really, really bad. There wasn't there really wasn't any policies other than just, oh, yeah, we're an equal opportunity employer. That's it. Um, I remember they they tried to do some diversity training, which was um, the lady had printed something uh, somebody else had written off of the Internet and read it all to us. And that was their diversity training. <laughs> um, so it's, that's not not going to work. You need specific policies that are written. Um, you also need influence from the trans community and LGBTQ community as a whole when you're writing these policies. Um, because that way you're talking to the people that are affected and you know what needs to be in the policies. You need to have safe safe spaces at your, like if, if you're in a warehouse, you need to have a safe space where people can go to just decompress or whatever um, because sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Um, so you need that. You need to have um, uh, like the HR department, they need to be trained and on board with um, protecting people and making it safe because I did not have support from the HR department when I worked in, in the warehouses I worked at. Um, you were just kind of out there, you know, like hoping you didn't get killed going to your car at night. Um, so that's one thing. Your policies that you put in place, also um, training, um, true diversity training, so people understand, um, you know, the issues that we have and how to treat people. Um, and then uphold, hold people accountable when they when they do mistreat people. And the in the job and everything. And add to that. When I look at nonprofit organizations that aren't just LGBTQ centered, and I see a board that has the same looking people on it, the same people with the same perspective on it, then I know the organization isn't being led with everyone in mind. Um, to bring businesses into Memphis, we need to show that we really do care about all different types of people. Diversity keeps us strong. We can't have the same single mind. No one's going to get served. And if I can be honest, the LGBTQ community spends a lot of money, mm -hmm. just yes. so we all know. <laughs> so this is one start. And the DEI does have to be real. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It can't just be something printed and shared that way. It has to be a real cultural humility effort. And these big places like Target and Walmart, and we need you to be there other than just Pride Month whenever you put out your put out your, your clothes and your merchandise. And then after, you know, July 1st, it goes back in the closet. Like, no, don't do that. That's marketing. That's not being supportive. Mm -hmm. I would also add just to, like, know who your local organizations are as an employer. You don't have to always have the answers to for your employees, but know who to connect them to when they're looking for resources and referrals. Um, yeah, I'm happy to pick up the phone or answer an email anytime um but we're here that's at the end of the day like we're the ones here to provide resources and answer the questions the employers don't should take the first step in just building those relationships with us absolutely and also um it, at out memphis the resources that we link people to we have vetted and put through questionnaires and the process we'll call it to make sure that you know because if we're going to give somebody those resources you know me and anu need to make sure that that we're not sending somebody where they're going to be mistreated. Um, because I would hate to hear feedback that we sent somebody somewhere and then they got mistreated. That, that would kill me. It really would. Um, so, yeah, good point. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And if there's any silver lining to um, what has happened in our state over the last few months is I do think it has um, asked people to learn. Um, people who 
you know, may not understand that. And I applaud Jamie for pausing throughout this conversation because I, I think there is um, such a patience within the LGBTQ community that we've forced on you um, that has been like, hey, tell us about what your experience is so I can understand it. Um, but I do hope that in some of the conversations I've had in the last few months with business leaders, I think there's this general sense of like things are changing fast. And I'm like, well, no, they're not. They just have never felt comfortable <laughs> being who they are. But um, having the patience and knowing that there are resources and organizations who are open to having these dialogues and for it to be okay to say, I don't know what this is, but I want to make sure that my workplace is a safe space and that everybody feels like this is a place for them, um, I think is a really important note. Um, and getting back to like, what can any average listener do if you're working at a company and you don't see these policies or you don't see it ex explicitly stated? Um, it's not to call your employer out. It's to go to them and say, hey, I, I feel like this could be important. And let me introduce you to these organizations in the city that I heard on the Meanwhile Memphis podcast. Oh, I know. Right? <laughs> Self-serving plug. Shameless um, plug. <laughs> to say, um, you know, there are resources for us to 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 move forward. Um, you know, as with so many things, it's always sort of a one step forward, two steps back. But to see a number of our, especially larger employers in the community, establish more concrete diversity, equity, inclusion practices, to have staff dedicated to that, like, to, to really push them to go, because it, it this should absolutely be included under that umbrella of work. Um, and as you said, make that um, meaningful and year-round and not um, to sort of be responsive. So um, I know we're, we're running out of time, but we have so many I great know, questions. <laughs> can can y'all provide, um, you, you've already done this a lot, you provided information for people who might be listening, who want to activate or want to get connected with y'all. Are there any other... Um, there are other opportunities in your organizations for volunteering, for activating somehow, for um, any events that you might have coming up that you want to share, anything mm. like that. I'm glad you bring that up because, Anna E., you talked about the silver lining. And one that I've seen is we've been together more. We actually had a week between March 25th and March 31st of the Slate of Love week of events. And we call it the slate of love because it was in response to the slate of hate legislation that came out. And it was a resume workshop. So those who didn't have a strong resume had a better chance of getting a job. It was an LGBTQ law enforcement forum. So we could ask officers, how do you plan to enforce this female or male impersonation law? Like, what are you really going to do? Are you going to be checking under dresses? Are you going to be like, how are you going to do it? Um, we also had a really great Rage on the Stage event that Jenna put on that had so many resources. Um, and we ended it all with a tea event that was at the Enchanted Tea Lounge. We supported a Black-owned business, and we all sat down and talked about next steps. And it's brought us together as a community. And we're not going to be pushed around, and we're going to know who we are, who we are together, and how we can help each other. We also had the panel. Have you been to the panel event? Which one? At the U of M. Oh, was it? Yeah, we, we had, had the, so the, many the trans experience, uh, transformation, the trans experience, which was just an educational panel event at the U of M. We also had, um, and that's another thing that employers can do. They could reach out to us, and we can set up like an educational panel at their place of business, or we could have one of us come and just speak to people. There was a dental school that recently had me come speak to like 150 students. And there was people that afterwards were like, I didn't realize y'all had all these issues and all these things. Like, I'm mm -hmm. like, they just gave me a hug because they like they didn't know. So there's things that, you know, places could do like that. 
Yes, and there in Mid-South Pride also had a meeting for the Pride Festival, a community meeting so people know what was going on, to ask what they could see at the festival, and about safety, because it's mm-hmm. going to be a safety issue. And if you want to keep up with events going on in Memphis, you can go to Mid-South Pride website and subscribe to their community calendar. I'll just quickly plug out Memphis's volunteer program. Historically out Memphis has been a volunteer run organization and grassroots in a lot of way. Uh, our first paid staff members were actually volunteer coordinators. So uh, historically out Memphis has relied on members of the community telling us what kinds of programming they would like to see um, and leading those programs. We have volunteer opportunities for our hot meals program. So things like low time commitments, you can come out during one of our uh, days that we do a hot meal, help us cook and serve. We do a lot of special events throughout the year, panels, pride parade, uh, testing, resource fairs, all kinds of stuff. And we need volunteers to be hands on deck for us. Uh, Queer prom, other kinds of special events. We have community members that lead social and support groups. So uh, members of the trans community who lead lead trans peer-led support groups, uh, members of the youth community who lead youth groups at Out Memphis. So we need leaders from the community to tell us the kinds of programs sing- program that they would like to see from our organization. Um, we can take volunteers, too. We have yes. a lot going <laughs> on um, because it's so sad. There's enough to go around, right? There's enough need to go around and we have a boutique we don't call it a clothing closet it's our presentation room we give you beautiful clothes we give you a makeover for the inside and the outside so if you have really nice clothes especially ones that still have the tag on them but you're not going to wear them please donate them to us so we can get them to those who don't have enough they may have a nice event at church or a formal event to get ready for or they just don't have enough confidence and we want to build their self-confidence and please volunteer with us you can find us at thehaven901.org we'd love to hear from you It sounds like there's lots of opportunities for people both within the queer and trans communities and who want to be allies Mm -hmm. to volunteer and support. Well, we are deeply, deeply grateful to y'all, not just for being here today, but for the work that you guys are doing every day in this community. Um, Again, I know it's been uh, a challenging time and your jobs are much harder uh, today than they were last year. Um, But thank you guys so much. And um, I hope that everybody listening reaches out and uh, I hope everybody is um, open-minded to what, you know, I, I hate sometimes when we have these podcasts, I'm like, our job is to affirm Memphis as a place to be. And I just deeply believe because of people like you that Memphis has a bright future and that uh, we're going to get past this. I would agree with that. I agree with that. And I love the grit of Memphis. I'm from Jacks, Mississippi, which is a different kind of grit. Yeah. Memphis, <laughs> Slightly different flavor. Yeah, yeah. Memphis's grit is a little louder. <laughs> yeah. But um, but you can feel it. You can like you can feel the hominess here. Like if someone needs a procedure done, they don't have enough money, then they'll throw a barbecue and everybody will bring five bucks so that she can get that surgery done, right? Like the sense of community is real here. And I like that. I will say that everything going on in Tennessee is not a reflection of Memphis as a city. Mm. Um, I tell people, yeah, we're from Memphis, not Tennessee. (laughs) Correct. Yes. (laughs) And I hope that we can be a positive influence for the rest of the state. You already are. Well, thank you guys so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. All right. Well, again, this is Meanwhile in Memphis. Uh, We are here with New Memphis. Um, I want to just thank, again, our wonderful guests from Out Memphis and Friends for Life. Uh, I thought that was just, I don't know, I, I, I left that conversation both um, 
angry, but also motivated, which is a, a spicy combination for me. <laughs> There's a lot of hope. I I, mm. I felt a lot of hope in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I really do. Like all of my fuel comes from um, just getting to talk to leaders who, one, are brilliant and doing really important work and two, um, have chosen to be here and stay here and make sure that um, we're moving things forward for everybody in the mm -hmm. community. So I, got, I felt a lot of that today. So I hope that you also enjoyed this conversation on your Tuesday morning. Um, a couple of things. we There are so many resources that we referenced in this uh, episode. I know you, if you couldn't keep up, if you were driving or you're out running while you're listening to this podcast, that's okay. Uh, in the podcast notes, we have links to all of those resources, both to the organizations that we referenced. Uh, we also wanted to note that um, Friends for Life has an awesome podcast called Prepped Sex, Stigma, Science, and the South, uh, which is a I'm like, I'm definitely going to go home and listen to that. <laughs> um, that really digs deeper into the nuances of some of these issues around Sex and science and stigma in the South, as the title implies. So, and there's uh, an episode featuring Jenna. If oh, you enjoyed yeah. listening to her and want to hear more about her crossover podcast action. Mm -hmm. So, thank you for uh, listening in today. Uh, again, if you're not familiar with New Memphis, go get familiar. Uh, go visit us at newmemphis.org. We're available on all your social channels at the New Memphis. Um, it's a great way to follow along, both to. Uh, engage in some of these topics, uh, both on the podcast, the radio program. We also have a great newsletter. We also have a number of fantastic events focused on this stuff. Um, a couple of things I will call out. Um, we are, I know, somehow in a crazy way, we are getting close to summer. <laughs> like <laughs> I am still firmly living in 2022. But uh, as we roll towards June and July, New Memphis has a series of free events specifically for college students, recent graduates, uh, any of those young people who are kind of stepping their toe into professional life. Um, it is, again, a free series of events over the summer that both get them engaged in Memphis as a great place to live and work. Uh, they're going to meet other young people. They're going to learn about the city and they're going to have a really good time. So if you are a college student, uh, go to newmemphis.org. But also if you employ interns, you have college aged kids or friends, um, it's it's really a fantastic program. And we are just gearing up to start recruiting for that. So newmemphis.org. And Jamie, what else do we have coming around the corner? Yeah, we have the next event in our Celebrate What's Right series is going to be May 16th at the FedEx Center in Shelby Farms. And it's going to be a really cool, this is going to be somewhat of a happy hour kind of style event, but um, we're going to have folks from all the different cultural sectors in Memphis having conversations, and it's going to be super great. Um, so stay tuned for more details. Uh, you can check out our events page on our website um, as, as that develops. All right. I think we've done it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, tune in next Tuesday for your next episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. Thanks, Jamie. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.